0: We've been studying uh, Galatians this fall. That's been our, our series that we've been working our way through. We've been here for several weeks now, and I just want to recap, try to recap quickly what we've seen. The, the first question that Galatians answers is, what justifies my life? Every single one of us, whether it's at the end of the day or at the end of our lives, is going to have to answer the question, how do I know if I measure up? Did I do everything that I could do? We have to answer that that life-justifying question when we reach the end. And I believe that most people answer that question this way. I did the best I could. That's the Predominant religion, in fact, in the world. And while it goes by lots and lots of different names, we could classify it as the religion of do. I justify my existence, my life, my life's outcome by my performance. Did I do all the right things? And you see then the problem with the religion of do. Can you ever do all of the right things? The rules always change. The rules are impossible to keep. Even the good rules, even God's commands. Can we ever look at them and say, I did my best? You may remember the movie Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler was a German business owner, factory owner. He was also a member of the Nazi party. Uh, And yet, he used his wealth and his political connections to save the lives of many Jews during the course of the war. Uh, He would uh, sell his personal belongings. He'd bring them to work in his factory. His factory, actually, it was a munitions factory. It never produced any working munitions. Uh, So uh, while Schindler was a member of the Nazi party, he was undermining the Nazi agenda uh, while at the same time kind of maintaining his his connection uh, he was you might say he was a, a double agent, uh, but when you get to the end of the movie, uh, the Allied forces are drawing near to the factory, and so he he and his wife are having to escape because they 'll be in trouble if they 're caught uh, and so all of the people that he has saved gather around to send him off, and he 's changing clothes he 's changing out of his suit, uh, changing into some drab clothes so that he uh, if he is caught, they won't know who he is. And as he takes his cufflinks off, he says, These could have bought ten more. I could have done more. He takes his pen off of his jacket, and he says, Five more people right, right here. I could have done more. And he breaks down, sobbing, saying, I could have done more. And that's where the religion of do leaves you. You could have done more. And the good news is that Christianity offers a different approach. It's not the religion of do. It's the religion of done. That Jesus has done all of the good things I was supposed to do. And he has not left undone. Excuse me, he's done all the good things and he's not done any of the bad things. He lived a perfectly obedient life. And then he died a death in my place. The death that I deserved he took upon himself. And then he rose from the dead to secure my future. That's the religion of done. That's the message of gospel Christianity. And it's the message that Galatian defends repeatedly. Paul defends repeatedly in Galatians. But that then raises another question. How do I live now? If everything I need has been done for me by someone else, how then do I live? Do I go back to the law? Do I go back to a relentless doing? Is that The call of the Christian life, Paul says, no, that's going back to the bondage of the law. We don't do that. What we saw last week is that now, instead of living under the law, we live by the Spirit. See, God's grace does not stop at the cross. God's grace does not stop at the empty tomb. God's grace continues after the second person of the Trinity ascends back into heaven. God's grace continues in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, coming to live in the heart of every believer, empowering them to live in a way that pleases God. That's what we saw last week. We live not by the law but by the Spirit. As we walk by the Spirit, His fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that fruit is born in our lives as we walk by the Spirit. Now, Paul's going to show us what that looks like in practice. That sounds really great, that life by the Spirit. That's, of course, that's what he, he contrasts, two, two kinds of life, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And, and we want the fruit of the Spirit. We want our lives to look that way. What does that look like in practice? That's what Paul does now. So if you would, let's pick up at Galatians 5. I'm going to read it again, verse 25. And then continue on. I know the bulletin says we're going to go through chapter 6, verse 10, but uh, chapter 6, 1 through 5 will contain enough for us to look at today. Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, would you help me as I preach to explain what's here and to apply what's here? And would you help all of us to believe it and to and by the power of your Spirit, would you put it to work in our lives? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. I mentioned last week that you know, my, my background is marching band, and so I think of marching. You always have to keep in step. I know that a number of you have served in the military, so you may have done a little bit of marching. Uh, you know what it's like to have to keep in step, and you don't want to be out of step. And what we're hearing is that the Spirit has a drumbeat. And we want to keep our lives in rhythm with that beat. And the beat of that rhythm is love, Paul says earlier in chapter 5. But what does love look like in practice? That's what he works out here. And what we see here, or at least what I see here, is that reality is so much harder than the ideal. You see this often in uh, premarital counseling. Couples, uh, a young couple looking to get married, talking about marriage, they often love the idea of being married. And to be fair, that's all that they have at that point. They haven't ever been married before. But couples often love the idea of being married, and then you get married. And then you realize that the reality of loving that real person in front of you is much, much harder than the ideal. The idea of marriage is one thing. The reality of marriage is another. It's not to say that it's a bad reality. It's just, it's easy to love an idea. But a real person, that's more challenging. Uh, it's the same in our political ads. we just ended uh, political season or in the process of ending it and it's interesting whenever you listen to an ad they're always shooting for an ideal they're apparently at some point or at some point in the past or at some point in the future was this ideal America and if we'll just elect all of the right people then we can achieve that ideal but I bet if you took a historical snapshot of life in the United States going back, I don't know, every 30, 40, or 50 years, if you just went back and you looked at real life in the United States, going all the way back to our founding, and just looked at different points, I don't know that you'd ever find the ideal. There was always some form of struggle. Now, is the ideal what we shoot for? Absolutely. But The real thing is always much harder than the ideal. It's easy to love an ideal rather than the real thing. And it's the exact same with the church. It's the exact same when we come to passages like this. Uh, We talk about community. We fall in love with the idea of a good church community. It's even part of our our vision as Grace Fellowship Church. We want to be a grace-centered community. But living that out with real people, not ideal people, that's the challenge. That's really hard. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Think about that. If you love the dream of a Christian community more than you love the actual Christian community itself, you become a destroyer of that very thing that you want. Uh, Pastor Eugene Park puts it this way. He says, community is never found. That's what you, you, we often hear people say. I'm looking for community. And it's a basic human need. We are looking for that. But he says, community is never found, it is only built. We need to stop thinking like shoppers and more like builders. How do we build Christian community? Paul gives us some indication in this passage. He gives us a general principle in chapter 6, verse 2, and then he gives us some concrete applications to go with it. And so I'll I'll work through the principle in verse 2 of chapter 6, and then we'll we'll talk about what undergirds it after that. Paul says this, chapter 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That seems simple enough. A burden, an intolerable weight, something hard to carry. This command from Paul assumes two things. First, it assumes that we all have burdens, whether that's physical burdens, loss of income, lack of food, shelter, clothing, sickness, injury. All of us experience burdens, emotional burdens, loneliness, anxiety, sadness, grief, and even what I would call spiritual burdens, guilt, lack of joy. In God, maybe a sense of despair. We all have burdens. And so maybe the first thing we need to do is admit that we're burdened. We need to be willing to be vulnerable and admit that we have burdens. I find that a lot of people are often eager to help, but they don't like to be helped. A lot of people are glad to, to come and uh, say, help mow someone's grass. But then when you show up in their yard with a lawnmower, they say, Oh, no, no, I don't need your help. What would happen if we actually admitted that we needed help? We don't like to admit that we're burdened because that would imply weakness. Asking for help means that I can't do it myself. And I don't like to admit that I can't do it myself. Friend, I'm going to be frank. That's a sin. It's called pride, and we're going to deal with that in just a minute. So, this command assumes, A, that we all have burdens, and B, it also assumes that when we see those burdens, we should help to carry them. We're not meant to stand at a distance and lament the poor choices of those who have found themselves burdened. We're not to gossip to others about those who are burdened. We are to try and help and bear those burdens for the other person as best we can. And that means it's going to get uncomfortable. Burden bearing implies getting close to the person that you're helping. If, uh, you've, ever, if you've ever worked out in a weight room, you're familiar with the idea of a spotter. Um, if you're not... Familiar with the idea of a spotter? Think about the last time that you had to move something really heavy and somebody had to come and help you move it. I'm not a particularly strong person, so whether I'm working out or moving furniture, I usually need help. Um, and I remember one time a friend was, uh, was helping me. I was, uh, I was doing a bench press, and typically right when you're balancing a heavy bar over your uh, chest and neck um, with heavy weight on either side, you have a spotter, somebody who's standing over you with their hands under the bar so that if you can't push it up the rest of the way, they can grab it and help move it up. Uh, And I remember a friend helping me. uh, He was spotting me one day on a bench press, and as I exhaled, he got a full gust of coffee breath right in the face. And I could tell because he had to wince and turn his face away. That's going to happen when you help somebody with their burden you might get a hot coffee breath in the face or something worse. But that shouldn't deter us from bearing one another's burdens. You'll have to get close enough to smell the coffee breath or maybe the whiskey breath. And that can be uncomfortable. But Paul says, in doing so, when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. Law of Christ. And that's odd. What's that doing in this letter? I thought Galatians was about not living by the law, but living by grace. Paul may be using a little sarcasm here. Remember that the Galatians are being led astray by a group called the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers were saying was that they were telling the Galatian Christians, no, you need to obey the Jewish laws in order to be accepted by God. You have to adopt this Jewish way of life. Jesus criticizes religious leaders like that. In Luke 11, verse 46, he says, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That's what the Judaizers were doing to the Galatians. They were loading them with the burden of the law. They were loading them down. And so Paul is probably saying, Hey, instead of loading people down with the burden of the law, why don't you actually fulfill that law by helping them take care, carry that burden? right um, And this is also a tangible expression of jesus command in John 1334 He says, A new command I give you that you are to love one another. How can we tell that, how can I tell that I love someone else that when I see them burdened down I want to help carry their burden. It is a tangible expression of love. That's how we keep Jesus' command. But in order to do that, in order to do that well, we need at least two things. And these are the next two points. One, we need to have an honest view of ourselves. And two, we need to have a compassionate view of others. First, an honest view of yourself. Look at verse 26. Paul says, Let us not become conceited. Maybe you know what that word means. Maybe somebody came to mind as soon as you heard the word conceited. If you're using an older translation of the Bible, uh, you'll see the word vain glory. Empty glory is, is literally how you translate that word. Again, I think we would call that Pride. Any time that we seek glory and honor apart from God, we're seeking empty glory. We are becoming conceited. And that leads us to, verse 26, provoking one another and envying one another. Why? Well, if I'm conceited, which means I'm worshiping me as the center of the universe, you pose a threat. If I deserve the glory, you pose a threat to that glory. So I'm going to provoke you because I'm threatened by you. So whenever whenever I'm threatened by you, I want to upstage you. I've got to show that I'm better. I've got to call you out. That's what provoking means. And if I can't upstage you, if I can't be better than you, then I will envy you when we're conceited. We either provoke or we envy. Because I deserve all the glory, after all, and you're taking the glory that I deserve. And we see the outcome of that back in chapter 5, verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So my opinion of me affects how well I can bear your burdens because if I think highly of myself I'm not going to stoop to help you you see this a few verses down chapter 6 verse 3 if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing he deceives himself but then Paul says something interesting he says let each one test his own work And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, wait a second. That sounds exactly like a contradiction of what Paul just said. I have to bear my own load and I have to carry somebody else's weight? So there's two different words there. Uh, The word for burden in chapter 2, or excuse me, in verse 2, means like an intolerable heavy weight that somebody would need help with. Load signifies just the normal, everyday pack you might carry. And what Paul is saying, he's not contradicting himself. He's calling for an honest self-assessment. He's saying don't judge yourself based on comparison with others. Right? What he's saying is "Don't, don't look at other people and base your value and worth off of them. Let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. He means I don't look at my neighbor and say, well, at least I'm better than him. I may not be as good as him, but at least I'm better than him. Paul says, nope, that's not, that's not what you need to do. You don't need to think of yourself more highly than you ought. Instead, evaluate yourself by God's view. A good way to do this is to think back to a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 8. Excuse me, Luke chapter 18. It's called the parable of the tax collector and sinner. i want to read it for you. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We need to have a right view of ourselves if we're going to bear one another's burdens, if we're going to love one another well. And we only have a right view of ourselves by the power of the Spirit who shows us, hopefully, that we're the tax collector, not the Pharisee. That... If all we can do is say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, we have said enough. But we also need a compassionate view of others. Pride causes me to look down on and be harsh with those who struggle. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Paul gives us a, a very specific example of what it looks like to bear another's burdens. He says, if anyone is caught... In any transgression, the word there for being caught, surprised. can could mean that you come across somebody, you've discovered their sin, or that they were surprised. They, they were tempted and they fell. So we're not necessarily talking about repeated, habitual, unrepentant sin, but rather surprised by sin. If anyone is caught in any transgression, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him. That word, Restore is used for setting a dislocated bone. And what a great picture that is of restoring a brother or sister in the church because this is the church, not the body of Christ. So I want you to imagine that when, we're come, when we come across someone else who's surprised by sin, caught by sin in the church, that it's like a dislocated or broken bone and we need to help Set the bone. John Calvin says, Reproving sin and correcting brothers is necessary, but we must not forget to mix oil with the vinegar. How do we help restore others? In a spirit of gentleness or meekness. Same word that described Jesus. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. Meekness is what we need Think about the life of Jesus. With whom was Jesus the most tender? And with whom was he the harshest? He's called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And when it came to the self-righteous religious leaders, his most, his most strident condemnation was for them. Jesus was meek with those who knew that they were fallen. And so uh, John Stott, as a commentator and pastor, he writes this. If we detect somebody doing something wrong, we are not to stand by doing nothing on the pretext that it is none of our business and we wish not to be involved. Nor are we to despise or condemn him in our hearts. And if he suffers for his misdemeanor, say, serves him right or let him stew in his own juice. Nor are we to report him to the minister or gossip about him to our friends in the congregation. No, we are to restore him, to set him back on the right path. Martin Luther applies the command this way. Luther says, we are to run to him, reaching out your hand, raising him up again, comforting with sweet words, and embracing with motherly arms. That's how we restore somebody who is caught in sin. Who is to do this? Paul says in verse 1, you who are spiritual. What does that mean? It means those who are walking with the Spirit. Those who are beginning to evidence the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Now, it would be very easy to say, oh, well, thank God, that's not me. I'm not... I'm not mature enough for that. I'm not very spiritual. Friend, that's not a reason to uh, take confidence. Rather, that should be an area of prayer in your life. Uh, the Spirit dwells within every believer, and so it should be something that we aspire to. Now he does say, uh, Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted and so we want to do this with care and concern. If it's an area in which you struggle, you may not be the best helper. An alcoholic may not be the best person to run into the bar and get the other alcoholic out. He may be. Each person knows themselves. But this is our call, that we are to have a compassionate view of others. Not we are to have a low view of ourselves and a compassionate view of others. And what is it that motivates this kind of behavior? Is it not Jesus himself, the great burden bearer? What does he say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The word lowly? Excuse me, the word gentle there, meek. Jesus invites us to cast our burdens on him. And he carries our burdens. That's why the yoke is light. You know, there's always two animals in the yoke. Jesus' yoke is light because he's on the other side carrying the weight. And so we are just simply yoked to him. If you haven't known the freedom of that, I invite you to come to Jesus this morning and experience rest for your soul. Amen. As we pray this morning, uh, our prayer uh, is this week is for our church and our neighbors and our coworkers, and it comes from Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, where, again, Paul tells us that God gives gifts to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so it's not... The pastor who does all the ministry, but rather it's the saints in the church as they are equipped by the pastor. So our prayer today is that God would equip us to minister, to serve other people wherever we live, work, and play. So as I uh, take a minute, we're going to pray. I want you to ask God, where do I feel unequipped for ministry? Uh, What what areas uh, do I need equipping in? But even connect it back to the sermon. Think about ministry. What is ministry? What is serving? We're we're relieving people's burdens, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual. We want to be able to come alongside and bear other people's burdens with them. How do you need to be equipped to do that work? Uh, Pray, ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you uh, the gifts and graces that you need. Uh, And then let's talk more about what that looks like in your life.